0: back to the Historia Dramatica podcast. I'm your host, Willem Kahn. In the last episode of our series on the Paris Commune, we introduced the political landscape of France circa 1870. For two decades, Emperor Napoleon III had ruled the Second French Empire and presided over a period of prosperity for the nation's upper and middle classes. And yet, political opposition to Napoleon III and his empire was widespread. Everyone, from revolutionary socialists to more moderate republicans, even other monarchists, lay in wait for the moment that they could expel Napoleon III from power. That moment came in 1870, when the emperor unwisely thrust France into a war against the kingdom of Prussia. France had no allies to speak of, and an army that was vastly outclassed by that of Prussia. To make a long story short, the French army marched off to war in July 1870 and proceeded to suffer a series of catastrophic defeats, the worst of which came in early September. During the Battle of Sedan, the French were decisively defeated, and the emperor himself surrendered to the enemy. The empress panicked and fled the country, leaving France without an effective head of state. Seizing this opportunity, Republican politicians declared the empire abolished and proclaimed the founding of the Third French Republic. However, until the state of emergency ended and elections could be held, a temporary government under army officer Louis-Jules Trochu would be formed. This was the so-called Government of National Defense. As the name would imply, the Government of National Defense committed itself to seeing the war through to a victorious conclusion for France. Unfortunately, this was a near impossible task. The French army had been absolutely crushed at Sedan, with most of the remnants trapped under Prussian siege in the fortress of Metz in eastern France. Paris was left almost completely defenseless. President Trochu had his work cut out for him, at least. First, he sought to concentrate what forces he could in the city. Between soldiers that had escaped Sedan, provincial forces from elsewhere in the country, and units of naval personnel and marines, Trochu had somewhere around 175,000 regular troops at his disposal. In addition to these, there was also the National Guard. The men of the National Guard were compulsorily conscripted, largely from among the working class. Compared to the professional soldiers, the National Guardsmen were poorly paid, inadequately equipped, and hardly trained. The National Guard constituted a plurality of forces available in the city, numbering 350,000, but Trochu had serious reservations about their effectiveness. All told, there were a total of about 500,000 men defending Paris. Trochu saw to it that a network of trenches and barricades were constructed where the city's ring of already established fortifications would not suffice. The parks constructed by Ausman in the decades prior were repurposed for use as artillery staging grounds. Factories that had previously manufactured consumer goods were ordered to produce armaments instead. Food was being imported from the countryside to sustain the population during the siege but the government gravely underestimated the length of the siege and did not implement rationing policies from the very beginning. This lack of foresight would come back to hurt them and the people of Paris in due time. The Prussian army reached the outskirts of the city by September 15th. That same day, Field Marshal Helmuth von Moltke the Elder ordered his men to initiate a siege. Despite publicly declaring their intentions to fight to the bitter end, In private, the government of national defense began working to negotiate an end to the war. They persuaded Adolphe Thiers, the senior statesman who had so recently passed when offered power, to come out of retirement and travel to London on a diplomatic mission. They hoped that the British would not only recognize the new republican government, but also that they would be able to mediate a peace treaty as a neutral third party. Jules Favre, now Minister of Foreign Affairs, agreed to meet Prussian Chancellor Otto von Bismarck to discuss potential terms. On the 18th of September, Favre left Paris in secret and traveled to the Rothschild Chateau in Ferrières, some 25 kilometers east of the city. Bismarck's demands were harsh, the annexation of the border provinces Alsace and part of Lorraine, as well as a hefty sum of money as war reparations. Favre was scandalized, To accept these terms, he believed, would delegitimize the government and result in revolution. He melodramatically exclaimed, You are trying to destroy France, and burst into tears. Unimpressed by these theatrics, Bismarck doubled down, informing Favre that he would not even consider a temporary armistice until the fortresses of Strasbourg and Toul had surrendered. Favre then reiterated his pledge to not yield an inch of territory nor a single stone of the fortresses and walked out of the negotiations completely empty-handed. Meanwhile, in Paris, with the Prussians breathing down the proverbial neck of the city, General Auguste Alexandre du gathered what forces he could in an attempt to hold the plateau of Châtillon, some seven kilometers south of the city. If this position could be held, it might prevent the city from being completely encircled, half of Ducros' forces were the unreliable National Guardsmen. The other half were Zouaves, light infantrymen conscripted from France's North African colonies. When the Prussians unleashed a salvo of cannon fire on the plateau, the young and inexperienced Zouaves broke ranks and fled. In the ensuing desertion, the National Guardsmen mistakenly opened fire on the retreating Zouaves, believing them to be the enemy. The Zouaves that survived stampeded back into the city, Many of these deserters then proceeded to become drunk and disorderly, for which they were court-martialed and many were shot as traitors. Irate at his failure to hold the plateau, General Ducrot was forced to call off the operation. The Battle of Châtillon was a major disaster for the defenders of Paris, one from which they didn't seem to learn their lesson, as they would repeat these same mistakes several times in the coming months. The day following the debacle at Châtillon, The Prussians occupied Versailles, some 20 kilometers southwest of Paris, with no resistance. The city was now completely encircled, cut off from the rest of the country entirely. With the situation looking more and more desperate by the day, the government of national defense decided that they would send one of their own members out of the city and out west to rally what forces they could in an attempt to break the siege. After some deliberation, the radical Republican minister of the interior and of war, Léon Gambata, volunteered for this mission. On the 7th of October, Gambetta left the city, flying over the Prussian lines in a hot-air balloon. After a few close calls, Gambetta was able to land the balloon safely to the north of the enemy, and continued overland to the city of Tours. The military situation only continued to deteriorate. By the end of September, both Toul and Strasbourg had surrendered. As the French army suffered defeat after defeat, the left began to lose its patience with the government of national defense. Socialist newspapers ran article upon article deriding the government's failures, especially Le Combat, ran by one Félix Piat. Piat was a renowned troublemaker and avowed socialist. His vitriolic personal attacks against a theater critic had previously earned him a six-month prison sentence for defamation. He once fought a duel with early socialist theorist Pierre Proudhon after he felt the latter had insulted him. He spent the decades since the revolution of 1848 in and out of exile abroad but he returned to Paris in early September 1870 and began to print his own newspaper. On the 26th of October, Le Combat came into possession of a most sensational story. Piat had learned, through a contact in the government of national defense, later to be revealed as Victor-Henri Rochefort, that other rabble-rousing socialist journalist, that Colonel Francois Bazaine was preparing to surrender the fortress of Metz and its garrison of 180,000 men to the Prussians. Rochefort had urged Piat to keep the information confidential, but the very next day's copy of Le Combat was emblazoned with the headline, The Fall of Metz. The government categorically denied that such a thing was happening, and accused Piat of being a Prussian agent. This worked to briefly turn public opinion against Piat. Copies of Le Combat were burned on the streets, and its offices were ransacked. But by the 31st of October, the government was forced to admit the direness of their situation. The Fortress of Metz had indeed been surrendered four days prior. At the same time, it was revealed that Adolf Thiers had returned from his diplomatic rounds in Europe, and was now urging the Government of National Defense to accept Bismarck's terms that Favre had so dramatically rejected. These developments proved to be the breaking point. That day, there was a massive demonstration in front of the Hotel de Ville, or the City Hall. Estimates placed the amount of protesters around 150,000, Crowds chanted no to the armistice, down with Trochu!" Many of those present were members of the National Guard, who, instead of dispersing the protest, instead marched with their rifle butts in the air, a gesture that signified that the guardsmen were in solidarity with the protesters. Trochu, along with the interim mayor of Paris, a man named Etienne Arago, went before the crowd to offer reassurances that the situation was well under control. Arago pledged that he would die on the steps of the Hôtel de Ville before he allowed the city to fall. Arago almost made good on his promise right then and there, when a shot fired from the crowd narrowly missed the pair. This shot was followed by several more that hit nobody. National Guardsmen remaining loyal to the government seemed poised to open fire on the protesters, but Trochu ordered them to stand down, and he sent for his ministers to help him defuse the situation. This protest had not been planned by the revolutionary leadership, but, when they caught wind of what was going on, they quickly proposed that they use the protest as an opportunity to storm the Hôtel de Ville, overthrow the government, and install themselves as replacements. Luckily for them, they had just the man for the job, Gustave Floren. The son of an accomplished psychologist, as an idealistic young man, Florence traveled to Crete to participate in that island's rebellion against the Ottoman Empire. Upon returning to France, he became an avid socialist and, following the events of September 4th, he found himself leading an elite sharpshooter division of the National Guard. At the behest of the revolutionary leadership, Florence made his way to the Hôtel de Ville at the head of his 500 men. Meanwhile, back at the Hôtel de Ville, successive attempts by the ministers to persuade the crowd to disperse had failed. But, later in the day, a rumor made its way through the crowd that elections would soon be held, and that Trochu would be replaced. Gradually, people lost motivation and returned home. The ministers had retreated to a back room in the Hotel de Ville to discuss their next move, when Florenz suddenly and dramatically burst into the room, followed by several of his sharpshooters and a cadre of various revolutionary leaders. Florenz climbed atop the meeting table and demanded the immediate resignation of everyone in the room. He was ignored. Next, he produced a list of the people that would come to comprise the new government, the Committee of Public Safety, as he called it. Notable members included on this list were Florence himself, Piat, Louis Auguste Blanqui, Pierre Frederic Dorian, the only member of the government of national defense that the left still respected, and Louis Charles de la a man that would become very important later on. Also included on Florence's list was, oddly enough, Victor Hugo. Yes, that Victor Hugo, the famous writer who often made no secret of his radical republican leanings. Already the revolutionaries ran into problems. The list of names Florenz had read was by no means unanimously agreed upon ahead of time. Some of the more moderate individuals on the list, such as Hugo and Dorian, wanted no part in this new insurrectionary government. A new list of names had to be drafted. Almost immediately, this descended into heated argument. A quote from Alistair Horn. Tempers rose and the insurgent leaders quarreled among themselves. Blanqui declined to have Florenz on his list, Delacluz did not want piat, and so on and so forth. End quote. This back-and-forth bickering continued well into the next morning, with no consensus. While it seemed to onlookers that the revolutionaries had achieved victory, the infighting at the Hôtel de Ville had given the government forces time to react. Minister of Finance, Ernest Picard, had managed to escape the building during the ruckus, and he spread news of the situation throughout the city. A call went out to all units of the National Guard who remained loyal to the government to muster. Answering this call was one Colonel Ebos and his division. The government of national defense was so unpopular with the average working-class Parisian at the time that Ebos had to take great pains to persuade his division to act on their behalf. After some wrangling, Ebos led about half his original division from the Place Vendôme to the Hôtel de Ville. The Hôtel de Ville was lightly guarded at this point. Many national guardsmen had simply wandered off, believing that their mission had already been accomplished, shouting revolutionary slogans to throw their enemies off guard, Ibos's men were able to enter the building unopposed. They quickly reached the main meeting room, where Florenz was still shouting from atop the table. Ibos climbed up to join him, and the two men engaged in a catfight that ended with the table collapsing under the men's combined weight. During the renewed pandemonium, Ibos's men were able to safely escort President Trochu out of the building. Once he was back safely at the Palais Vendôme, Trochu came up with a plan to rescue the remaining cabinet members who were being held hostage and to retake the Hotel de Ville. Shortly after midnight, he sent prefect of the police Edmond Adam and a detachment of loyal National Guardsmen through a secret passage that led into the building from a nearby barracks. The revolutionaries were caught off guard, but they would not go quietly. They still held most of the government ministers hostage, and they threatened to execute them if any of their own was killed. Having reached an impasse, both sides were forced back to the negotiating table. After several hours of talks headed by Adam on one side and Delas Clues on the other, an agreement was reached. The revolutionaries would release their hostages and vacate the premises, and, in exchange, the government of national defense promised to hold municipal elections, and no reprisals would be made against the revolutionaries. Around three o'clock in the morning, the revolutionaries and government ministers exited the building arm-in-arm and parted ways amicably. The next day, at a meeting of the government ministers, Adam was asked if he had arrested the ringleaders of the coup attempt. He solemnly informed them that he had not, and he had promised to do no such thing. Trochu then firmly insisted that Adam resign, which the 54-year-old police chief promptly did. He was replaced with a man named Ernest Cresson, who had no qualms with bringing the would-be revolutionaries to justice. The new police chief promptly had 22 ringleaders of the October 31st insurrection arrested. An election took place on November 3rd, as promised. The question posed to Parisians was something along the lines of, ''Do you approve of the performance of the current government?'' to which 560,000 replied yes, and only 53,000 replied no. The government did not fare as well in the municipal elections two days later. Five of 20 administrative districts of Paris elected socialist mayors, notably Dils and a radical young journalist named Georges Clemenceau of Montmartre. The events of 31st October destroyed what little good faith remained between the left and the government of national defense. Next time, there would be no negotiation. While this high intrigue was unfolding within the city, it is worth remembering what was happening outside. The Prussian siege was about to enter its third month, and there was no end yet in sight. Despite the fact that certain elements of the Government of National Defense were still pushing for peace, the army staff still refused to give up the war effort. In early November, General Ducro drew up a plan that he believed would yet secure victory for the defenders of Paris. Ducrot planned to muster a force of around 60,000 men and break out of the city where the Prussian lines were weakest, particularly at the crossing of the Seine River, at Genvier to the northwest of the city. Once this had been achieved, Ducrot planned to lead his army through unoccupied territory to the port of Le Havre, on France's northern coast. From there, he could open up a supply line back to Paris, and perhaps link up with whatever French forces remained in the countryside. Ducrot's plan was approved by Trochu and the preparations began with the scheduled date for the sortie being slated as November 24th. On November 14th, a carrier pigeon entered the city with good news for a change. As it turned out, War Minister Léon Gambata's efforts to muster forces in the provinces had panned out better than anyone realistically expected. He managed to draw in upwards of 50,000 recruits, who were organized into the newly christened Army of the Loire. After suffering some initial setbacks, The Army of the Loire actually won the first French victory of the war, when they took Prussian Allied forces by surprise at Colmiere, a small village some 20 kilometers southwest of Orléans. The Army of the Loire was then able to occupy the city of Orléans itself some few days later. In Paris, the news of this victory was met with jubilation, a quote from Alistair Horn. The city exploded in a delirium of joy. Aurel, the general of the Army of the Loire, was proclaimed as a modern maid of Orléans, in the excitement, the revolt of October 31st and the growing food shortage were forgotten. At last, the spell of defeats had been broken. End quote. This was not felt among the general staff of the city. This development threw quite a bit of a wrench into their plans. The army of the Loire's presence at Orléans had caused the Prussians to reinforce the south side of the city. Deciding that an attack to the north would be counterproductive and an attack to the south would be suicidal, Ducreau was forced to change the location of his attack to the eastern side of the city, across the Marne River. The date of the operation was also pushed back by five days. Trochu attempted to send a hot air balloon to Orléans with intel of the changes so that General Orel could change his plans accordingly, but the winds changed, unfortunately, and carried the balloon all the way to Norway. The date was set, hard and fast. The events of November 29th would decide the fate of France. As that date approached, The delirium of joy gave way to a general sense of unease. This attitude is best expressed in the words of Victor Hugo, whose poem, Words During the Time of Trial, was written at this time. The last two stanzas of the poem read, Pale, we reach the sublime escarpment, and we kick the plank into the void. The morning of the 29th, bulletins were posted throughout the city, announcing the Great Sortie, as they called it. One such bulletin, written by Ducro himself, laconically stated that he planned to either return to Paris dead or victorious. The Great Sortie got off to a disastrous start. It was quickly discovered that rain from the last night had turned the Marne River into an impassable torrent. Attempts to cross regardless led to dozens of men drowning. Truchoux ordered the offensive to be delayed by 24 hours to allow for the construction of pontoon bridges. Now able to cross the river, Ducro's men were able to capture the villages of Brie and Champigny on the opposite bank of the Marne, facing little resistance. They faced more resistance when they tried to force their way up a hill into the town of Villiers, which the Prussians had been able to reinforce during the 24-hour delay. Artillery fire failed to dislodge the Prussians from their fortified positions. So the French had to risk a frontal assault. A quote from Alistair Horn, Each attempt left heaps of blue and scarlet figures to enliven the seared winter grass, none any closer to their goal. Casualties reached almost 1914 proportion. One regiment lost its colonel and 400 men. The Zouaves, eager to erase the shame of their performance at Châtillon, were driven to despair at being decimated by a well-fortified enemy, another foretaste of the First World War. End quote. Ducrot's reinforcements failed to arrive in a timely manner and casualties continued to pile up to no avail. Ducros requested a truce to bury the dead and evacuate the wounded, which was granted. The next day, the Prussians launched a counterattack, and the French lines shattered. The ensuing retreat was a pandemonious entanglement of men, dying, wounded, and demoralized, making a break back for the city. Some tried to stage a last stand on the bank of the Marne, but it was already too late. Ducros called off the operation once again, and ordered all of his forces to withdraw back across the river, The much-anticipated great sortie turned out to be nothing more than a catastrophic failure. Over 9,000 men lie dead or wounded. Ducrot returned to Paris neither victorious nor dead, and recommended that the government sue for peace. To make matters worse, the following day, Trochu received a letter from Field Marshal von Moltke that read thus. It may be useful to inform Your Excellency that the Army of the Loire was defeated yesterday near Orléans except dear general the expression of the high consideration which i have the honour to be your humble and obedient servant chief of staff count von moltke End quote. the siege dragged on winter set in and it just so happened that the winter of 1870 1871 was to be one of the coldest in recent memory it was around this time that the food shortage began to be felt very acutely as i mentioned before Efforts to stock Paris with food in preparation for the siege had been inadequate. In the heady early days of September, the government made no effort to ration food, simply because they figured the siege would be over in two months at most. Christmas Day 1870 marked the 99th day of the siege. More traditional meats, beef, pork, lamb, etc., had run out fairly quickly. As early as October, horse meat, already consumed amongst the lower class, was becoming endemic in the city. Next to go were cats and dogs. Hunger even drove the inhabitants of the city to eat rats. Parisians looked everywhere for sources of protein. One place where they found some were the city's zoos. So it is that if you read a restaurant's menu from this time, you will see all sorts of bizarre dishes. A menu at the American consulate in Paris in January contained the following. Siege bread, which was made from rice and straw, in addition to wheat. Horse soup. Stew of cat. Head of donkey. Fricassee of rats and mice. Filet of mule and roast ostrich. Not even castor and pollux, the two much-beloved elephants kept in the zoo at the Jardin des Plantes, were safe. They were both shot and sold to a butcher in mid-December. Lisa Geray writes of the situation in late December, quote, "...from hour to hour, the sting of hunger was increasing, and horseflesh had become a delicacy. Dogs, cats, and rats were eagerly devoured. The women waited for hours in the cold and mud for a starvation allowance." For bread, they got black grout, which tortured the stomach. Children died on their mother's empty breasts. Wood was worth its weight in gold, and the poor had only to warm them the dispatches of Gambetta, always announcing such fantastic successes. End quote. Parisians were not the only ones tiring of the prolonged siege. Over in Versailles, where the Prussians had set up court, Bismarck was growing restless. The siege needed to be brought to a conclusion soon, or else he worried that his southern German allies would back out and his goal of unifying Germany would not be realized. To speed the process along, he proposed bombarding the city. While Summit Court opposed this course of action, notably Field Marshal von Moltke and the king's son, Prince Friedrich, Bismarck got the approval of King Wilhelm, and on the 5th of January, the shelling of Paris began. For the next three weeks, around 12,000 artillery shells, an average of about 660 shells a day, were fired at the city. Some nights, artillery shells struck the city at a rate of once per minute. The damage done to buildings was great, but civilian casualties were surprisingly low. Only 97 people were killed, and 278 were wounded in the entire Prussian shelling campaign. More succumbed to starvation, disease, and exposure than were killed by the Prussian artillery. Indignation at the shelling forced the government of national defense to commit to one last ditch effort to break the siege. Trochu dramatically proclaimed, The governor of Paris will not capitulate, and began to devise a set of plans for yet another sortie. Now forced to rely on the National Guardsmen he so distrusted, Trochu organized a force of about a hundred thousand and began marching westward, towards Versailles. The Battle of Bousinval, as it would come to be known, was largely a rehash of the earlier disasters at Châtillon. Morale plummeted as the National Guardsmen, tired, hungry, and disorganized, faced Prussian cannon fire. Men refused to obey orders, fired on each other accidentally, and so on. Four thousand Frenchmen lay dead on the fields at the end of the day. Trochu was disgraced. He ceded his military duties to General Vinoy, but retained his political office. The massacre at Bouzenval proved to be the breaking point for one particular group of National Guardsmen from the suburb of Belleville. Early in the morning of January 22nd, a group of these disgruntled militiamen marched to the Mazas prison in the eastern edge of the city. They demanded the immediate release of Gustave Florenz and all other prisoners arrested following the abortive coup of October 31st. The warden agreed to negotiate, but when he led in four guardsmen to sit down and talk, They promptly flung open the gates to allow entry to their comrades. At gunpoint, the warden agreed to release Florenz and the others. Florenz promptly went into hiding after being released, but his liberators gained momentum. They first took over the town hall of the 20th Arrondissement, and soon after they marched to the central Hotel de Ville. Once there, they were joined by a number of civilians, and together they vented their frustrations, hurling all sorts of insults at the building where they believed the government of national defense was convening. Unbeknownst to them, none of the government officials they were insulting were present at the time. A couple officers from the building's garrison did inform them, however, that the building was packed to the brim with soldiers loyal to the Government of National Defense, and that there would be no repeat of October 31st. Between two and three hundred more rebellious guardsmen arrived on the scene that afternoon, and took up positions around the building. During the standoff, a single shot was fired by an unknown shooter. The National Guardsmen reacted by firing a volley at the Hôtel de Ville. The guards inside the building, in turn, opened fire on the crowd. The two exchanged fire for little more than 30 minutes, and when men came to reinforce the Hôtel de Ville, the National Guardsmen retreated. At the end of the day, five lay dead and 18 lie wounded. The incident of January 22nd was the first time that Frenchmen had fired upon other Frenchmen intentionally, and it would certainly not be the last. With the prospect of starvation on the horizon, and the military being so thoroughly defeated yet again, the surrender of Paris was imminent. The Prussians were so assured of victory that, on the 18th of January, in an ornate ceremony in Versailles, King Wilhelm I declared himself German Emperor. The German Empire, consisting of Prussia and the southern German states of Baden, Württemberg, and Bavaria, was proclaimed. Shortly thereafter, The government of national defense opted to reopen negotiations with the newly formed German Empire. A few short days later, Jules Favre once again left the city in secret to negotiate with Bismarck. Bismarck greeted Favre by jokingly remarking that he was thinner and more pale since they last met. By the fifth day of negotiations, the agreements for the armistice were as follows. Paris would surrender its surrounding fortifications, and their artillery was to be spiked. The city would be partially occupied by the Germans until the government paid an initial war indemnity of 200 million francs. Elections were to be held as soon as possible for a reconstituated National Assembly, whose primary directive was to compose a conclusive peace treaty. And finally, all combatants within the city were to be disarmed. This last point was the most contentious. Bismarck's opening position was the disarming of all combatants, including the National Guard. Favre broke into theatrics once again. Declaring that disarming the National Guard would mean civil war. He asked that the National Guard be left alone, and that three or four divisions of regular soldiers also remain at arms, to counteract any attempts at armed insurrection by the National Guard. Bismarck reneged on his original position only slightly. He would allow the National Guard to keep their arms, and he allowed the French army only one division within the city. At midnight, on January 28th, as per the terms of the armistice, a French cannon fired the last shot of the siege, and of the Franco-Prussian War itself. That morning, the stunned citizens of Paris awoke to a proclamation of the government of national defense, announcing the armistice. This document at the same time insisted that continued resistance was untenable, but the wording was left vague enough that one would be led to believe that the armistice was only a temporary thing. Paris has suffered much, but the republic will profit from its suffering so nobly born, we will come out of the fight that is ending, tempered with hope for the fight to come. We come out of it with honor, with hopes, and despite the sorrows of the present hour, we more than ever have faith in the destiny of our fatherland. End quote. The left, who was opposed to an end to the war, brought none of it. They saw this armistice for what it really was. A complete capitulation, a betrayal of the oft-quoted promise to never surrender an inch of territory nor a single stone of the fortresses. When the news of the Armistice reached Gambetta and his new headquarters in Bordeaux, he refused to accept it and resigned angrily. Now, I'm certain that many listeners are left wondering why the left would be opposed to an end to the war. Why was the Government of National Defense's effort to end a war opposed by the left at every turn? After all, wasn't this the folly of Napoleon III in the first place? Had he not caused this war... And had this war not caused unspeakable, needless suffering, especially among the working class? And how do these views square with the anti-war position of the modern left? I feel that Vladimir Lenin explains these contradictions quite succinctly. A quote from his work, The State and Revolution. The proletariat was blinded by patriotic illusions. The great patriotic idea had its origins in the great revolution of the 18th century. It swayed the minds of the socialists of the commune. But... Profound changes had taken place since that time. Class antagonisms had sharpened, and, whereas at that time against the whole of the European reaction united the revolutionary nation, now the proletariat could no longer combine its interests with those of the bourgeoisie. In summary, at this point in time, the ideologies of nationalism and socialism were not yet opposed to one another. It would not be until Marxism came to become the dominant strain of left-wing thought that nationalism came to be viewed by the socialists as something that should be explicitly rejected. Even with that being the case, the question of nationalism and its compatibility with socialism continued to be a contentious topic of debate as World War I erupted in 1914. Socialist political parties and labor unions were forced to decide whether or whether not to support their nation's war efforts. But I'm getting ahead of myself. The point here is that most leftists in France at this time were ardent nationalists, they believed that France was, to borrow a term from the North Koreans, the headquarters of the revolution. Thus, it was incumbent upon the revolutionaries to defend the nation against foreign tyrants, read the Germans. And that is why the left viewed the Government of National Defense's surrender to the Germans as the ultimate betrayal of the revolution. And it is with that explanation that I will leave things off for now. With the Germans on the verge of entering a defeated Paris in triumph, and a revolutionary left still holding true to Favre's declaration of neither an inch of territory nor a single stone of the fortresses, would the government of national defense be able to prevent the city from erupting into violence? Tune in again in two weeks' time to find out. In the meantime, you can follow the show on Facebook, follow me on Twitter for regular show updates. Links will be in the description. Additionally, if you have any questions, concerns, corrections, suggestions, etc., please feel free to email the show at historiadramaticapod at gmail.com. Until next time, this has been the Historia Dramatica Podcast. I'm your host, Willem Connor, signing off.